Oh my Lord, my God, you are amazing. No one can compare to who you are. The Word of God made flesh, my head is spinning. Father's only son, the bright morning star. You're the creator, you are the savior. Who died and was raised and made all things new. You are the alpha and you're the omega. You are God and man, there's no one like you. Oh my Lord, my God, you are a wonder. For you became my man because you are love. We were all enslaved to sin and Satan. But you left your home in heaven above. You're the creator, you are the savior. Who died and was raised and made all things new. You are the alpha and you're the omega. You are God and man, there's no one like you. You're the creator, you are the savior. Who died and was raised and made all things new. You are the alpha and you're the omega. You are God and man, there's no one like you. You are God and man, there's no one like you. You are God and man, there's no one like you. 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 All right, uh, good evening. Could you turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 15, verse 14? Romans chapter 15, verse 14. All right, uh, we're continuing to 
plow our way through the book of Romans. We're getting near the end. Actually, we're in the final section of the epistle, as I've been mentioning the last couple of weeks. And um, I just read, as I do, before we get into way, as always, I'm always reading different different things in different areas. And um, I'm usually reading about five, six, sometimes seven books at a time in different areas and going along with the regular job of, you know, exegeting and doing the exposition of, of, the, of the book that we're working on. And, uh, but it's interesting, you know, uh, I just read some books on uh, exegesis, and now you hear me use that word. And just as a reminder, exegesis, all that is, is what I do is, is what I do in my study. Exegesis is where I'm bringing out what the original language says. We don't speak, uh, the, the, you know, the original authors, they spoke Hebrew and, and Greek in the New Testament, Old Testament Hebrew, of course, and some parts Aramaic. But the, you know, we, um, the, 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 the task of a person like myself is to, as a pastor, is to bring out what the, the, that original text says and get, the, get a translation, get a, a meaning of the text and what it says. Now, you might be saying, well, you know, I have the gift of the Holy Spirit and he's going to, you know, lead me into all truth. And what's the point? What is the Holy Spirit doing? Why do I need you to exegete from the original languages? Well, once, we've, the, the, once we know what the text says, the Holy Spirit is the one who gives us understanding as, as an insight in, in the spiritual uh, realm as to what the text is saying in a spiritual sense to us. But before we get to that spot where the Holy Spirit can tell you what he inspired in the original language, it's up to the man with the gift of past, the teacher, to go back and to bring out what the text, what the text says. And then the Holy Spirit gives us, me and yourselves, illumination and understanding and as to how it applies. As, as it how it applies to our lives and therefore it becomes spiritual phenomena for us. So, the, uh, you know, I'm, the, I'm part, my, my job is to bring out what the text says. And, the, you know, the English translations, as I said before, are a great guide. I don't you ever lose confidence in the English translations. They're great translations and they're great men of God and women of God that have been involved in these translations. And some of the new ones I've been trying to point out to you, like the ESV and also the Net Bible, are excellent translations that have come out in the recent years. The NIV is good, and the New American Standard is as well. That's more of like of a, a literal uh, translation. But all these things are tools as to you know study of the scriptures. But as you look into the original language of a text, you get more understanding of what it says. And I'll never forget when I did Philippians, and I finished. I started Philippians when I was in Massachusetts in 1996, and I finished it. And uh, in, in 2002, in the spring of 2002, when I was out here. Now, after I finished Philippians, after going through the original language, I realized how much I didn't know about the, the book of Philippians by just look at having a cursory look at the book and in in different English translations. I learned much more. And what happens is, when you look at the original language, you go into the world of the author. Okay, and that's one of the, my, my jobs is to help you see things from the author's perspective. Uh, and basically, primarily, is what his what he is saying in the text, and we go by what he says, and then we go from there. So the Holy Spirit is inspired the scriptures, and it, the man with the gift to pass the teacher is to exegete, bring out what the text says in the original language to English-speaking people or wherever the language is that you, you know the pastor, whatever country he's living in. So my job is to get it to you in that standpoint. And then as, we're, as I'm proclaiming, exposition is me uh, giving you the meaning and understanding of what the text is and how it applies and what it's saying. So uh, when I'm done doing this, that's when the Holy Spirit is at work, giving us illumination and understanding 
as to the text. And that's why we, we have them. So, for instance, there are a lot of guys who could translate the Bible and don't have any idea what it's saying in a spiritual sense. They don't hear the Holy Spirit because they're not believers and therefore they can't, they can't understand and make an application nor can they appreciate what the Spirit is saying. And a good passage about that that teaches about that is, and I've noted in the past, is 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 10 through 16. So uh, this is uh, some of the things I like to bring out as uh, during uh, the course of our studies before we get underway here in our study of the Book of Romans. And as also, just as I've been, been announcing for the last couple of weeks, after we do the Book of Romans, which we're going to finish uh, sometime this summer here, we're going to, when we finish that, we're going to go to the Book of uh, Jonah. And uh, Jonah... I've taught the teenagers the book, and years ago I went through it a little bit here. As I look at my notes, I went through the book, but I, it wasn't a, uh, it was more like a general outline of the book. But uh, when we get into Jonah, there's a lot of cool things we're going to learn about, and primarily God's love for the entire human race. Even the most wickedest, wickedest people in the world that you can think of, God has love for them. And so we're going to be studying that, and there's a lot of things in the book of Jonah. So I'm already researching, starting to research that. That book is, a, and I was talking to John about it today, on the, and, and, uh, and I've mentioned it here in the past, the last couple of weeks, is that uh, Jonah is like four chapters. And then when we get back done with Jonah, we're going to go to, to another New Testament epistle, maybe probably one of Paul's epistles, maybe Colossians, I'd like to do that. And we've never done it here. And that's four chapters. But uh, right now, what I want to do is I want to try to knock off some smaller books so we can cover more of the, the, the Bible. See, we did two huge books. We did Genesis, and we did, we're doing Romans. We're almost done with Romans. So those were uh, very massive. Now, uh, Romans, you might be saying, why did Romans take so much longer than Genesis? Well, Genesis, you can cover more ground because Genesis is a narrative, and it's, it's more of a story-type thing. And, for instance, you could get in three or four sentences a paragraph in Genesis, you can get the complete thought of what's being said in that paragraph. Uh, whereas when you look at Paul, one verse, is, and we're going to see it this evening, one verse can contain two or three statements that contain two or three different thoughts, and sometimes four thoughts, major thoughts. So Paul is a little bit different in his, this epistle of Romans, is a little bit, a lot different actually than a, like a book of Genesis or Jonah, which is a historical narrative as well. So uh, it's a different genre. The Bible has different types of literature and you have to approach each book accordingly. So it takes us, it'll take us less time to go through a book like Jonah than it would, of course, the book of Romans, because we have to, we want to get each thought what the Holy Spirit has, and the passage in Romans has a lot of thoughts that are being conveyed. So uh, that's why we, it takes, it's taken a lot longer in the book of Romans. All right. Well, that being said, let's take a moment of silent prayer before we get underway, as we normally do. And the next few moments uh, are for those who might be listening on Pal Talk or on the internet or getting our materials somehow, CDs and uh, watching the video on the website that have never been exposed to the ministry. And at this time, we take a few moments of silent prayer to bow our heads and close our eyes so that we can apply 1 John 1.9 if necessary. And uh, 1 John 1.9 states, If we confess our sins to the Father, He, God the Father, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins with the result that He purifies us from each and every wrongdoing. Paul calls it judging the body rightly in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And failure to do so, he said in Romans, 1 Corinthians 11, is divine discipline. Yeah, that's why he said some people in Corinth had suffered dying discipline. They went home to be with the Lord. God took them out. And uh, there was also intensive disciplining and warning discipline. 
that the Corinthians had went through because they were uh, disrespecting the Lord's table. And so uh, confession of sin is important for us to have fellowship with God. Sin doesn't affect our eternal relationship with God. However, it does affect our fellowship with God. And once we've done that, now we're restored to fellowship, but we have to maintain that fellowship by making sure we obey what the Spirit is saying to us through the teaching of the Word of God. We study this in uh, Romans 8, 5, and 6, which gives us the mechanics of the filling of the Spirit, which is commanded of us in Ephesians 5, 18. So now when we're doing that, we can hear what the Spirit's saying to us. And as I said before, this book cannot be understood. The spiritual dimension of the book cannot be understood without the Holy Spirit giving us illumination. So this is a very important time. It's a very serious time when we study the Word of God. That we, must, we must always approach it Myself and you, the audience, must always approach the Word of God with the respect that it deserves. It deserves all the respect in the world. It's God's Word. He's speaking to us, His people, through this Bible and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So we should give it all the respect it deserves. That means, and I know you guys in the chapel know this, that we do nothing that's disturbing or distracting to those who are serious students of the Word of God. That's why we have a, a mother's room, so the babies can go in there. We have kids can go downstairs, so the adults can hear what the Word of God is, what the Word of God is in the chapel as it's being proclaimed. So we must have all the respect in the world for the Word of God, and it's our spiritual nourishment. And we, man does not live on bread alone, but from every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So with that in mind, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, another day to gather together with the body of Christ, both here in this, in this chapel and also with those in the internet. We thank you, Father, for your word, and we stand in awe of your word because it reveals who and what you are and the Son is, who he is as the God-man and also the Spirit, and what you've done for us in eternity past through both your Son and the Spirit and also have, are doing for us now, will do for us in the future. We just thank you, Father, for revealing through your word and the spirit the plan of God for our, your plan for our lives to become like your son, Jesus Christ, and also what you want us to do in relation to the rest of the world to proclaim the gospel, which is the power of God for salvation. We thank you for giving us this wonderful privilege of being part of a ministry, a gospel ministry that proclaims the word of God to a lost and dying world. And we also thank you, Father, for... Uh, this uh, building to meet here on a consistent basis and all the assets that you've given us, both visible and invisible. And we thank you, Father, for those who have you raised up in this geographical location and a part of our extended congregation that are serious students of the Word of God. Those who are faithful in giving their time, their talent, and their treasure and praying for this ministry. 
We just thank you, Father, for each and every one of them. And we pray that you would continue to add to our number, continue to break down the barriers Satan has put up that is hindering people from being exposed to the gospel for their salvation or the word of God for their spiritual growth as believers. Help us in this in ministry and those uh, that are, uh, have not yet really committed to the ministry and, to, and therefore to your son. Help them to see the, un, the significance of what they're doing and the impact it can make and that it can result in tremendous rewards that bring glory to you and your son, Jesus Christ. So help us to see what a great pr- privilege that we have to serve you and the body of Christ and uh, the rest of the world by giving them the gospel. And we just thank you, Father, for uh, the, the book of Romans and the things that we've learned in this study. And we just thank you so much, Father, for all these wonderful things that the Spirit has been showing us. And we pray that you would continue as we finish off this book. Help us to understand it even more and more uh, each day. And we just pray that you would continue to guide the rest of our study in the book of Romans. And we pray that you would help us this evening. We pray that this evening that you would help those in the audience to concentrate so that they and to carefully consider and understand the passages and principles that we'll be noting this evening. And we just pray that it would, what the Spirit says will take root in our hearts. We also pray that you would help the communicator so that he might present your full counsel to your people this evening that would minister to them and bring glory to you and your Son, Jesus Christ. And we also pray that as a result of this Bible class that we'd grow in a greater love and appreciation, Father, for you and your Son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit and what you've done for us and are doing for us now and will do for us in the future. In our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. This evening we're going to begin a study of Romans 15, 16. And uh, remember, we finished the main argument of the epistle, which began in Romans 1, 16, and it ends in Romans 15, 13. It's the present, Paul's presentation. The main argument was Paul's presentation of the gospel. In the gospel, which was proclaimed by the law and the prophets, In the gospel, the object of the gospel is the Lord Jesus Christ. And the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, the Gentile. Now, we're going to see in this verse this evening, Paul is going to develop, uh, give us the reason why God gave him the spiritual gift of apostleship. And we'll see that it was so that he could be a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, and that he, and we're also going to see in this verse that he served the gospel of God like a priest, in order to that the his offering of the Gentiles would become acceptable to the Father, because they, the Gentiles, believers, have been sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So we're going to start to see, beginning in Romans fifteen sixteen, how how much Paul valued what he was doing, and also as we saw in Romans fifteen verses eight through twelve, we saw that he understood the prophetic impact of his ministry. that And it's also true of our ministry and all ministries that are getting the word of God out here in the church age. That we are actually fulfilling prophecy. Ourselves as Gentile believers, it was predicted in the Old Testament that Gentile believers and Jewish believers would worship the Lord Jesus Christ together. Not only, and we're seeing that now, we're going to see that at an ultimate sense in the millennial reign of Christ. And we'll see that again when we study the Day of the Lord series on Sunday. So we see that we're fulfilling prophecy, not only by the fact that we believed in Christ as Gentiles, but we're also fulfilling prophecy when we get the gospel out and the different means that God has given to us. We're fulfilling that prophecy. And Paul 
understood what he was doing and the impact he was doing that he was having for God and for the world that he lived in in the first century. And I hope that you see, when we finish this particular section of Romans, that get a greater appreciation for what we are doing here in this ministry. And all Christians, who are whatever ministry you belong to, that is faithful to the word of God, that you are making an impact and that it does count for something and that God is using what you're doing. He is, when you proclaim the word of God, it does not come back to you empty-handed. And it always fulfills the purpose for which it's been proclaimed. So we're going to see Paul understood and appreciated what God had done for him, giving him the gift of apostleship and specifically to be an apostle to the Gentiles. And by doing so, he was able to see prophecy, Old Testament prophecy fulfilled right before his very eyes as Gentile believers in mass, more so than the Jewish believers, in mass, the Gentiles, myriads upon myriads of them have been coming to Christ and having faith in Christ and becoming a member of God's people, becoming members of the body of Christ, the future bride of Christ, and being engrafted in with Jewish believers into the so that they might uh, uh, be beneficiaries of the abundant blessings that were promised to Abraham in the covenant that God made with him, and also the new covenant by having all the covenants were given to Israel, as we've seen in Romans eleven. That we are partakers, and Romans, uh, Ephesians 3 teaches this too, that we become, in Galatians 3, that we be, we Gentile believers, though we didn't get the covenants, weren't directed toward us, they were given to Israel. However, we become partakers of those blessings, and because of our faith alone and Christ alone. So the blessings that were promised to Abraham are flowing to us. And we are, we are actually fulfilling prophecy by that taking place. Our faith in Christ and being members of the body of Christ. Are, we are actually fulfilling prophecy. And we're fulfilling prophecy as we proclaim the gospel and people are coming to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. So this evening we're going to begin a study of Romans fifteen sixteen by noting that Paul reveals to the Christians in Rome that the Father gave him the spiritual gift of apostleship for the purpose of being a servant of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. And the word he used for servanthood here in this passage, as we'll see, litoragos. Litoragos is different from the other word, thulos, which we've seen in Paul's studies. It's a different word, and it talks about, the Greeks used it for somebody who was uh, commissioned for a very important, special task. It talked about public servanthood. And this is the word that Paul uses in this passage. So we're going to talk about servanthood, Paul's servanthood, and also the application for us, the analogy, is that we, too, are servants of the gospel and servants of Christ Jesus for the benefit of the Gentiles. So Romans, again, we're going to see this evening, Romans 15, 16, Paul's going to reveal to us in this passage that the Father gave him the spiritual gift of apostleship for the purpose of being a servant of Christ Jesus on behalf of the Gentiles. Tomorrow we'll wrap up the verse by noting that he served the gospel of God like a priest in order that his offering for the Gentiles would become acceptable to the Father because they've been sanctified by the Holy Spirit. As we'll see tomorrow, he talks about the Gentile believers being an offering that he presents to the Father. That he's using this gospel as the means by which the, the Gentile believers can experience their sanctification by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
And so Paul is presenting a picture in this verse of himself like a priest, presenting his offering at the altar, and it's the Gentile believers that are his offering, and he considered it a very serious thing that he was doing, a very solemn duty and a wonderful privilege that God had given to him. And we see that the information that he presented in this epistle that we we studied in the main argument of the epistle was the means, that gospel was the means that the Gentiles could use if they applied what he taught in the main argument of the epistle that they can experience their sanctification by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the same thing for us. When we apply the things that we've learned in this Roman epistle, the Holy Spirit, his power can uh, allow us to experience the fact that we're sanctified, meaning we're set apart exclusively to do God's will. And this is so the same thing Paul's talking about here for the Gentile believers in Rome is applicable to us here in the 21st century. Now look at Romans 15, 14. And concerning you, my brethren, the Roman believers, I myself also am convinced, I'm, I'm the firm personal conviction, that you yourselves are full of or characterized by goodness, filled with all knowledge, knowledge of the Father's will, and able also to admonish one another, teach each other, instruct each other. Verse 15. Now, he says this. Now, he's going to go... Uh, the, the next statement he's going to say in verse 15 is brought about... He, he makes this statement in verse 15 because he's saying... He, he, what he's doing is, if, I, if we could ask the question this way, if, you, if Paul feels this way about the Roman believers, that they're characterized as full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able also to admonish one another, if he's convinced of that, that's his firm personal conviction of the Roman believers because of the information he received from his friends that are, he mentions in Romans 16. If that's his firm conviction, then why did he write what he did in the epistle? Why did he write boldly, issuing commands and prohibitions to these people when he never had met them face to face before? He says, verse 15, he tells us, but I've written very boldly, referring to the commands and prohibitions he made. I wrote very boldly to you on some points, so as to remind you again, that word eponymonisco is eponymonisco is actually the verb. It's translated so as to remind again. That word eponymonisco is a word that means to remind again. It talks about repetition, as we saw last evening. It talks about repetition, and so they heard these things that Paul taught, as we saw. He, he, the things he taught in the main argument, they knew already. He was simply reminding them. Then he goes on to say, and the reason why he did remind them again, because of the grace that was given to me from God. As we saw last evening, he's using this word grace this time to talk about his spiritual gift of apostleship. He's basically being humble there by using that statement. He's saying that by using this word grace to identify his spiritual gift, he's saying to them, even though I'm commanding you in this epistle, it's all by the grace of God. I have nothing in myself. It's by the grace of God I have this gift. I didn't earn it or deserve it. I'm on equal footing with you. I'm saying the things I'm saying in this epistle because that's my responsibility. And as we saw last evening, the pastor teacher, his gift, like all spiritual gifts, have been given by the grace of God. There's nothing better about the pastor. He's on, he has no merit with God either like everybody else. He's given that responsibility, that gift. He has a responsibility to communicate the word of God, just like Paul did as an apostle. So he says in verse 15, 
But I have written very boldly to you on some points so as to remind you again because of the grace that was given me from God to be a minister, he says, in verse 16, of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest the gospel of God so that my offering of the Gentiles may become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Now, the phrase to be a minister of Christ Jesus, to be is a prepositional phrase. We, in the original, we have the preposition is, and then with it, we have the articular form of the infinitive emi. And this word emi means, to, is the word for to be. Now, this word emi means to belong to a particular class of individuals in the human race that is identified by the expression in your English Bibles, a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. So, He's talking about a special, uh, he belongs, he's a, he belongs to a, specific, a particular group of individuals that are identified as a minister, a servant of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. He looked at himself as a servant. Though he had the highest authority in the church, he could tell pastors what to do. He could tell, go out into somebody else's congregation and tell them what to do. You can't do that because nobody's an apostle. The last one died in 96 AD with John. So we are autonomous. So we see that Paul could do those things. But he always looked to himself as a servant. And this is telling us, again, Paul had the attitude that the Lord Jesus Christ had and taught to his, his, Peter and John and James, the ones, his apostles who walked with him and his disciples, to serve one another. Those who are great in the kingdom of God serve one another. That we're not, you can't be a spectator. At some point, you've got to grow up and you've got to apply the word of God and serve. And service is where you express your love, not only for the body of Christ, but also for your Lord and Savior. It's also an expression of your love for the Father. And it's also an expression of your worship for the Father and the Son. So service is very, very, very important. We've seen, seen it quite a bit in our study of the book of Romans. So this word, emi, means to be- belong to a particular class of individuals in the human race that are identified by this expression in your English Bibles, a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. What a great privilege that we have. We're, we're servants of, the, of, the, of Christ Jesus as well. On behalf of the body of Christ, who are primarily Gentiles. I think I don't think there's any Jews and Jewish believers in our ministry. So we 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 can be we're servants as well for the body of Christ. What a great privilege we've been given. You know, in the ancient world, even if it's true today, servanthood and serving others is frowned upon. The Greeks hated it. The Jew, Romans hated it. It was just like it is today. I want to achieve power. I want to be. I want people to wait on me. I want to be the big cheese. And that is not the way the kingdom of God works. Those who are great in the kingdom of God, like the Apostle Paul, are servants. And he served the body of Christ, listen to me, by communicating the word of God. Just what the pastor is supposed to do. Communicating the word of God, i.e. the gospel. And when you get the word of God out, you're serving the body of Christ. That's what you're, that's what all communicators of the word of God are to do. Communicate the word of God. Not get involved in being a social director and doing counseling. You know, the people who have the gift of encouragement can counsel. The pastor's job is to study and teach the word of God and set an example for his congregation, exemplary Christian life. Now, 
The articulate form of the infinitive, emi, is governed by this preposition, is, and it functions as an infinitive of purpose. What does that mean to us? Well, it indicates that the Father assigned to Paul the gift of apostleship in order that he would be a public servant of Christ Jesus for the Gentiles. And not translated in our passage is the personal pronoun ego, which emphasizes that Paul is a minister of God for the Gentiles. So we could, if we look at your Bibles, we could throw it in. He could probably say, to be, I myself, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. He's emphasizing, with this word ego, which they didn't translate in the New American Standard, he's emphasizing to the reader uh, what uh, his service here. Let me see if I can show you my, my translation of this particular verse on the board. If you look on, yeah, you can see that. Look at verse, uh, look at verse 15. It says, however, I previously wrote for the benefit of each and every one of you without exception, rather boldly in part, so that I would at the present time remind each and every one of you without exception because of the spiritual gift which was assigned to me for the benefit of myself and others by God the Father. Now look what he says in verse 16. For the express purpose that I myself, see how he's emphasizing his servanthood. I myself would be a servant owned by Christ, who is Jesus, for the benefit of the Gentiles. So this word that's not translated, I don't know what the uh, other, I can't remember the other English translations if they translated it, but this word ego, which doesn't appear translated in our Bibles in the New American Standard, is emphasizing Paul's servanthood, that he's a servant and he, he considered it extremely important. Then we have the word minister, key word in the passage, obviously. It's the word litoragos. Litoragos is used here by Paul to describe himself as one who's been commissioned by God to not only serve him, but also the Gentiles, and specifically regenerate, or in other words, born-again Gentiles, such as those whom he's writing to. Now, this word, it's interesting background in, the, in classical Greek and in the Septuagint and the Greek New Testament. Uh, this is a part of exegesis. I have to go back to the original language and see how it was used in classical Greek. That's why you have lexicons and you, you try to read these texts and you see how it was used in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, because there are a lot of words that are used in the Septuagint that they use in the New Testament. And they help us understand meanings of words in the New Testament as when we look at how they're used in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. This word is a very interesting word. There's different words for being a servant. There's uh, thulos, which we've seen many times. Paul says, I'm a, a servant of Christ Jesus in verse 1 of chapter 1. But he's not using this word here because he wants to emphasize something about his ministry to the Gentiles. The word was used, this word, leitoragos, it was used in the ancient world to describe doing a service of special importance. Thus it describes one who is highly respected and is honored by his fellow citizens. Also, it is a word that emphasizes service that is performed not only behalf of, on behalf of God, but also for one's fellow human beings. Uh, the Greeks, they, were, they, they would uh, ta- use this word as far as political service, being a, a, or a military leader. They would use that as a public service to the people. Now, some in the ancient world, of course, because of the sin nature in the devil's world, the influence of the devil's world, when people served, it was usually for power and for money, and, you know, they, they, that, was a, that was all for show. But service, when they wanted to talk about public service, they would use this word, lay toward a ghost. 
Now, it is a word again that emphasizes in the ancient world and in the New Testament service that is performed not only on behalf of God, but also for one's fellow human being. So the word speaks of one who is a public servant. You know, it actually was used, uh, this word was actually used, I believe, in Romans 13, 6, as we saw, and it talked about that uh, governmental rulers are public servants. Remember when we studied that? They're public servants, they serve the public, and they serve God, as we saw. So this word was used of governmental leaders. It was also in Hebrews 8.2, I was looking through my notes, in Hebrews 8.2, it was used of Jesus Christ, who serves us, in Hebrews 8.2 it says, as, a, as our great high priest. He serves us. He prays for us at the right hand of the Father. He intercedes for us when Satan makes accusations against us when we sin. That's what he's doing right now. He doesn't have his feet up watching the television. He is serving. He's serving us right now as we speak. So this word, Laetor Agos, which Paul uses in Romans 15, 16, is also used, it's also used here, in, uh, also in Hebrews 8, 2, and also Romans 13, 6. Now, therefore, in Romans 15, 16, this word, Laetor Agos, has a double sense in that it describes Paul as a public servant who serves both God and regenerate Gentiles, born-again Gentiles, whom Paul has been delegated authority and power over by God. It describes Paul as a public servant on behalf of God and the Gentiles. Now, you know, it's very important that, you know, we're not an apostle, okay, but uh, pastors... And you also in the, in the audience and those who are part of this congregation that are helping me get the word of God out to God's people and in the, in the, to the unsaved, we're being public servants too. And we're actually serving not only God, but of course people as well. And that is where, and I've tried to make, and a lot of you know this already, most of you know this, I think, but service is where you make, it, make it the greatest impact on people's lives. You make the greatest impact for God but also the impact you make on people's lives. You know, when you, when, you, when, you pre- when you teach in the prep school, when you do something like that, you're helping individuals. You're helping a child to get a gain appreciation of the Lord. Maybe lead them to the Savior. And that is a huge, huge thing that you're doing. God sees that as a big thing. You might not think it, it's important because it, the world doesn't value what you do. It doesn't value going, you going to Bible class, serving. You, it's serving the body of Christ. Uh, it, you, it, you, uh, you're not valued. What you do, the Word of God, teaching the Word of God as a pastor, it's not valued by the world. They don't consider it. They, they think all pa- the world is... Even I have family members who think that past, being a pastor, oh, you must be out for the power or something. What power? But that, that people's attitudes in the world are, that, uh, are, are not to serve others, but to be served and to get ahead and to be on top. Whereas the Christian goes the other way. Those who are great in the kingdom of God are those who serve. So we are public servants. Those of us who are trying to get the gospel out, we're public servants of, of, the, of, of believers and the unsaved. And of course, we're serving God. So this word could actually describe what we do. Here, Paul's using it to describe himself. And we should take from that, that we're being public servants from, for God and also uh, the body of Christ and the unsaved. Now, this word describes Paul's service of communicating the gospel on behalf of God and the Gentiles as a priestly duty. And uh, it's indicated by 
the word that's translated in verse 16 here, ministering as a priest. So if you look at the, if you look at the passage, it says in Romans 15, 16, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. Then he uses the verb. He uses this verb, yaru ariero. And this word is translated ministering as a priest. He's, he's, he's using imagery of a priest off presenting an offering at the altar to God. And his offering is the Gentile believers that he is serving by communicating the gospel to. So he says, so the, this word, Laetora Ghost, translated minister in, in Romans 15, 16, describes Paul's service of communicating the gospel on behalf of God and the Gentiles as a priestly duty, and that's uh, indicated by the verb translated ministering as a priest, which is yaru yariero. Now, now this noun, Laetora Ghost, and this verb, yaru yariero, are not describing Paul communicating the gospel to unsaved Gentiles so that they can receive the forgiveness of their sins and eternal life. But rather, they dis- these two words describe his service to born-again or regenerate Gentiles. How do I know that? It's indicated by the context. Because who is he providing an explanation as to why he wrote boldly to them in some parts of the main argument? Christians, the Roman Christians. In Romans 15, 15, Remember, he revealed, Paul revealed that he wrote boldly because of the grace, i.e. the spiritual gift of apostleship given to him by the Father. And now in verse 16, he says that the purpose of this, of the Father giving him this gift was so that he could be a public servant of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. So because Paul's explaining to the Roman Christians the manner in which he wrote to them in the main argument of this epistle and why, and was not writing to those who were unsaved, we know that Paul is speaking of his, of his ministry to regenerate Gentiles. So, why do I bring that up? Because every time somebody brings up the gospel or uses the term gospel, they think it's always related to the unsaved. And most of the things that Paul said, all the things he said, in the main argument of the epistle, which he calls his gospel, from Romans 1.16 to Romans 15.13, who was he writing to? Christians. He was writing to Christians. So when we use the gospel, yes, it's used in relation to the unsaved, that they can receive the forgiveness of their sins and be declared justified by God through faith alone and Christ alone. But it's also used in relation to the believer. It's good. What does the word gospel mean? Good news. It talks about, a, used in the ancient world, of a victorious proclamation of victory on a battlefield. And the gospel for the Christian is that it's a good news, a victory proclamation that they've been delivered from the Satan, from Satan the tyrant who held us captive and the sin nature and the devil's world. That's the good news. We can, ex- we've been delivered and we can experience this deliverance from our three great enemies by appropriating by faith what the Spirit said to us in this epistle. And in particular, Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8. Now, let's take a little cruise, because Paul is talking about service here, service, serving the Gentiles. I want to go to a couple of passages that talk to us about Christian service and how important it is. I want you to go to Galatians chapter 5, look at verse 13. Galatians chapter 5, verse 13. Galatians 5.13. For you, writing to Galatian believers, who are Gentiles, 
For you were called a freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh to, to uh, feed this in nature. But through love, serve one another. Serve one another, and love is the means by which we do it. That's what they, we were supposed to do. We have freedom in Christ, but freedom is not a license to sin or to get our own way. It's a license to serve. That's what we've been given freedom for, to serve. Now go to, go to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 20. Look at Matthew's Gospel, chapter 20. Look at verse 20. Matthew chapter 20, verse 20. Matthew chapter 20, verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee, James and John, they call them the sons of thunder, came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, what do you wish? She said to him, command that in your kingdom... These two sons of mine may sit one on your right and one on your left. But Jesus answered, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? Talking about suffering. They said to him, we are able. And he said to them, and they didn't know really what they were saying. He said to them, my cup you shall drink. Excuse me. But to sit on my right hand and on my left, this is not mine to give. That's the father's. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And hearing this. The ten, the other apostles, the mighty apostles, who didn't, at this point in their lives, and they're walking with Jesus, didn't get it. They didn't understand that their servanthood, and they were too busy. They were thinking like the world. Look at it says in verse 24. And hearing this, then the ten became indignant with the two brothers. <laughs> but Because they thought the two brothers put the mother up to it. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know, that the rulers of the Gentiles the unbelievers, lorded over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. Our great men today, you know, President Obama, the Secretary of State, you know, great men, that's what he's talking about, great political leaders. Verse 26, it is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Now, we need to understand, Slavery in our day and age has got a great negative connotation attached to it, does it not? Same thing in the first century. And we're repulsed by the idea. Satan is repulsed by the idea. He was created to be a servant of God, but he rebelled. So the world, which is, in, which is deceived by the devil, hates the whole idea of servanthood. And being a slave is not a bad thing. You're either, as Jesus said, you're either a slave to sin and the devil or you're a slave to him. You're either one or the other. And if you become a born again and saved through faith in Christ, you become a servant of Christ Jesus. You are not your own. You've been bought with a price. He purchased you. That's what redemption's all about with his deaths on the cross. And you are owned by him. And when you're somebody else's property, which you and I are, and Paul recognized, and the apostles didn't recognize at this point, when we're somebody else's property, we need to be about their business, not our own thing. And if our own thing is taking us away from his business, we need to make some changes. Okay? These guys didn't get it in the, in the Gospels at this point. 
So he says in verse 27, whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. See, they all want to be top dog here. Look at verse 28. Now he gives himself as an example. Just as the son of man. He uses that. It was a favorite title that Jesus had for himself. It emphasizes, it's actually referenced to Daniel 7. The son of man would go up to the throne, to the ancient of days, and receive the title deed for the earth. Remember we saw that? Well, that's what he's referring to. So that just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Go to the Gospel of John. John 13. John 13. Look at verse 1. Now, this is, the, this is the night. He's going to go to the cross the next morning, right? Judas has betrayed him. Chapter 13 of John, 14, 15, 16, and 17 are called the upper room discourse. I think chapter 17, he was, saying, he was speaking to them while he was on the way to the Mount of Olives. Either way, you sl- either way it, 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 as it goes, it, this is called the upper room discourse, these chapters. Now, they walk into, they're in, they're in this the upper room. They're going to do the Lord's Supper and everything, right? There's no servant to wash their feet. That's what a slave would do. He'd wash your feet. You walked into somebody else. Like, for instance, if I go over to Doug and Jeannie's house, if they lived in the first century, they'd have a slave, and the slave would wash my feet or anybody who came into your house. Same thing. But we don't have slaves today. Uh, so we, what we do is... I'm just going to say something. I'm not going to say anything. But anyways, we have wives now. No, just get it. I'm going to get a hate mail now. <laughs> no, we... Uh, and I don't have one. But anyways... So you see that they had, somebody was supposed to do this job. Well, there was nobody who was there that night to do the job. It was just, it was secret, Jesus and his disciples. So it says in verse 1, John 13, 1. Now before the feast of Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own, who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, the devil, having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper and laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. Basically, what he did there is symbolic of what he did as the God-man. He, he, was, he left the trappings of, of heaven, and he veiled his deity with a human nature and came in the likeness of men as a servant, as we saw in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. This is what it's, what he did there was very symbolic, and it's going to teach them some servanthood right here. Look at verse 5. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel with which he was girded. So he came to Simon Peter and he said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered and said to him, What I do you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. When they had the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, He who is bathed bathed, needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. That there's a, there right there tells you that Judas Iscariot was not saved. Because clean means that they've been regenerated. Okay? They're saved, is what he's saying. Except one wasn't. Judas, we know. 
Look at verse 11. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason he said, not all of you are clean. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table, he said to them, do you know what I've done to you? And everybody was like aghast that he just did what he did. You call me teacher and Lord, and you were right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Not literally. Be saying, be servants of each other. For I gave you an example that you should also do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed. That means happy if you do them. So, Paul understood that. Paul understood that. Paul never walked with these guys. But Paul, when he got saved, like every other believer, he received the Spirit, and he listened to what Jesus taught. He listened from the, uh, from the apostles. He was also taught by the Lord Jesus Christ himself, direct revelation. And the Spirit told him, servanthood. You are to be a servant. He could read his own Old Testament. Isaiah 52, I think it's verse 15, all the way through chapter 53, the great suffering servant passage, which speaks of Jesus Christ, the suffering servant of God. So Paul knew this, and that's what he's conveying to us in Romans 15, 16, which you can go back to now. He's saying, I'm a servant. I'm a public servant for both God and man by giving the gospel to the Gentiles, you Gentiles in Rome, as I wrote in the main argument of the epistle. So go back to Romans 15. Look at verse 16. So he says in Romans 15, 16, he says, well, look at verse 15. But I have written very boldly to you on some points so as to remind you again, because of the grace, the apostleship, that was given to me from God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, or for the express purpose of being a public servant of Christ Jesus, or someone who is owned by Christ who is Jesus, on behalf of the Gentiles. So that word minister, Leitor Agos, is, is figurative language to describe Paul's service to the Lord and his Gentile Christian readers. So I don't think some people realize that when you, like Paul communicated the word of God in writing to the Roman believers, he called that service. When someone who's teaching you the word of God, that's called service. He's serving you, the pastor. He's serving, it's interesting, in Acts, remember when they did, in Acts chapter 6, when the deacons came into existence, when they decided to get deacons, because the apostles were, the apostles were being inundated with all these problems and difficulties, and they couldn't concentrate on the ministry of the word and prayer. He, they said, it's not right for us to wait on tables but they use it, it's a wordplay, and they actually wanted to, get, they wanted to serve the word of God to people rather than serve literal food. And they couldn't do that because of all the problems. That's why deacons came into existence, so the, so the, the communicators of the word of God could be concentrating on the ministry of the word and prayer so that they could serve the body of Christ, serve a meal. Man does not live on bread alone, from every, but every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, Matthew 4.4. 4. And that is servanthood. When you communicate the word of God, that's what Paul's saying here. So he's using figurative language here when he uses this word minister, which is the word leitoragos. It's figurative language to describe Paul's service to the Lord and his Gentile Christian readers in Rome. Both this noun and that verb, yaru ariero, which means to serve as a priest, picture Paul as a priest and the gospel is the means by which he offers his acceptable sacrifice to the Father 
which is regenerate Gentiles. Now the word Gentiles, to the Gentiles in your passage, that's another prepositional phrase. It's the preposition is, and then with it its object is the articular form of the noun ethnos, which is correctly translated Gentiles. This word ethnos, we've seen a lot. We're going to see a lot in the rest of the passage. It means the Gentiles, someone who is not Jewish racially. It's used in contrast to the Jews, and thus it refers to all those individuals who are not of Jewish, Jewish racial descent and thus not members of the covenant people of God, Israel. Now, the preposition is is a marker of persons benefited by an event with the implication of something directed toward them. What does that indicate to us? It indicates that the Father assigned the spiritual gift of apostleship to Paul in order that he would be a servant of Christ Jesus on behalf of or for the benefit of the Gentiles. So if you look at your passage, we could translate it. I showed my English translation uh, not too long ago. But for the, we could translate verse 16. For the express purpose of being a public servant owned by Christ who is Jesus on behalf of or for the benefit of the Gentiles. Now in Romans 1.5, the, the first statement in that verse... Paul communicates to the Roman believers that through the Lord Jesus Christ, he has received grace and apostleship in order to minister to the Gentiles. In Romans 1.5, the second statement there, Paul teaches that the purpose for which the Lord gave him the spiritual gift of apostleship was to bring about the Gentiles, uh, the faith among the Gentiles, which produces obedience to God. Remember we studied in Romans 11.13, he said specifically to his Gentile Christian readers in Rome, and expressed the fact that he took great pride in his ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles. So the other apostles were not specifically sent to the Gentiles. Paul was. Does that mean the other apostles didn't go to the Gentiles? No. James, uh, James and John, history tells us, and Peter, Peter was the first, he evangelized Cornelius. In Acts chapter 10, a Gentile. But Paul had a specific ministry. And as we get further in Romans 15... It was the plant churches throughout the Roman Empire where in the Gentile areas to start churches, to plant churches in those, in those areas and to establish churches there and sh- set up church leadership there, assign, get pastors there and then move on to the next city as we'll see later on in chapter 15 what he did. But Paul understood his ministry was for the Gentiles. The Apostle Paul was called as an Apostle to the Gentiles by the Lord himself and not the other Apostles. Acts 9.15 teaches this. Acts 22.21, Romans 11.13, 15.16, our passage. And also in Galatians 1.15-16 and 2.2 and verses 7-9 and 9 through 9 of that chapter, as well as Ephesians 3.1 and 1 Timothy 2.7, he t- mentions this quite a bit, that he is an Apostle to the Gentiles. He understood his role. He understood what the game plan was. Now, if you don't know what God's game plan, the application, if you don't know what God's game plan for your life is, how can you glorify him? How can you make any inroads for him? him? How can you make any impact for him and help others when you don't know the game plan? If you know the game plan, Paul knew the game plan. He knew exactly what he was supposed to do. He knew what his role was, and he knew what he had to do. It's like coming out to Iowa. I know what I have to do. I know how to do it. And I know what I'm supposed to do, and I'm supposed to get be faithful and carry out the task. And Paul understood that he was direct; his ministry was directed toward the Gentiles. The Lord Jesus Christ commanded his disciples to present the gospel to all the nations, both Israel and the Gentile nations. Matthew twenty four fourteen teaches that. Matthew twenty eight nineteen. Go make disciples of all nations. 
That's the command, not baptize. Baptize is not an imperative mood or an imperative participle. Go make disciples of all nations is. You know what that means? The nations are Gentiles. And a disciple is someone who is a student of the word of God. So that's what we're supposed to do. We're to make students of those who are born again and saved that are Gentiles. And a Jew, if we have to, a Jew can get saved, great. But we're supposed to make disciples of them who understand the ways of Jesus, the ways of God. So to summarize as we wrap this verse up and then we'll take a two-minute break and then have our prayer meeting. But to summarize, thus far in our study of Romans 15, 16, Paul reveals to the Christians in Rome that the Father gave him the spiritual gift of apostleship for the purpose of being a servant of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, or a public servant. Now, next, next evening, tomorrow evening, we're going to note that he served the gospel of God like a priest in order that his offering of the Gentiles would become acceptable to the Father because these Gentile believers have been sanctified by the Holy Spirit. As we'll see tomorrow is that, and actually if you look at verse 16, I'll show you quickly. He says, to be a minister, or for the express purpose of being a minister of Christ Jesus, on behalf of the Gentiles, ministering as a priest the gospel of God. And ministering as a priest means, how does he do that? His, give the gospel out. He did that in writing to the Roman believers. So that they, here's the purpose of that, so that the, my offering of the Gentiles, Gentile believers, might become acceptable to the Father by being sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And as we'll see, the word acceptable may become acceptable. It's what we call a causative middle. And the Gentile believers, when they read his gospel, and we read it, us Gentile believers, we cause ourselves to be acceptable to the Father when we obey the gospel. When we obey it now and take it on faith, the power of the Spirit comes into our life and he sanctifies us. We experience our sanctification. But it's not let go, let God again. He provides the gospel, the word of God, and we have to apply it. God, this is what God says, what he wants, what he wants done, who he is, what he wants from you, what's the game plan. Now it's up to us to carry out the game plan. He's the coach, and we're the players. And if we, a great player follows what his coach has to say. A great player knows what his coach says before he even says it. Great players are coaches on the floor, right? Well, Paul was one of those guys. So Paul, he is telling us in, in this verse, as we'll see tomorrow, we're going to see that he said he served the gospel of God like a priest in order that his offering of the Gentiles would become acceptable to the Father because they've been sanctified by the Holy Spirit. We'll see that tomorrow evening. So let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for those here this evening who've taken out the time out from their busy days, from their jobs, their businesses, their families, that have sacrificed their time with their family this evening so that they could hear the word of God. And we just thank you, Father, for each and every one of them. And we pray that their, this, uh, the word would take root in their hearts and that the Holy Spirit would continue to water it and that it would uh, bring, bear fruit so that we can bring glory to you and your son, Jesus Christ. We also, Father, lift up uh, Pastor Azam. And we just pray, Father, for his safety and his security from those who are threatening his life. So we just pray, Father, for him that you would give him deliverance. And, Father, we pray for these things in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we'll take a couple-minute break, and then we'll have our prayer meeting.